Hello and welcome to another episode of the uh, Consortium of Indo-Pacific Affairs uh, podcast, uh, particularly the sub-series Military History Conversations. Um, I'm your host this evening, Chris Kolakowski, who is the uh, Senior Fellow at the Consortium of Indo-Pacific Affairs and the head of the Military History Team. And joining me this evening is another member of the Military History Team and a Fellow at the Consortium as well, Jose Custodio. Hello. Nice to meet you. Tonight's topic is one that's kind of meaty, kind of very timely for sure. And uh, it really demonstrates why understanding the history of this region helps you understand the geopolitics of the region today. And what I'm referring to, of course, is China's century of humiliation. What is it? What was entailed in it? And why does it matter today? That's going to be the conversation that Jose and I um, are going to have here in this episode. I would like to emphasize that uh, the views expressed are those of um, are our personal views and do not necessarily reflect uh, the view official views of any of the organizations that we are affiliated with. Um, and so with that, um, the Chinese century of humiliation is something that the People's Republic of China has um, referred to quite a bit, quite a quite a bit very recently. And it seems to be a part of the how the Chinese, particularly the Chinese military and the People's Republic, view themselves. Um, and so let's let's get into what is the century of humiliation. Where does it start? Where does it end? Which I've heard different things as well. And uh, we'll start with that, and then we'll just start going through why the Chinese interpret their history the way that they do. So, Jose, why don't you why don't you kick us off here? That define the century of humiliation for us. Well, the century of humiliation is China's, um, when China was faced with the might of Western imperialism. Okay? Um, of, of the 19th century was a time of expansionism, especially for uh, European powers. Okay? And then uh, China was a um, country that was, it was an empire, basically, that was in the midst of uh, a lot of problems. Um, it, uh, there was uh, internal strife. Um, the uh, the country itself was uh, the, was uh, was weak, the, uh, precisely because of the fact that um, you had a a dynastic uh, the you had this imperial system that was very backward looking. Okay, so it wasn't it wasn't um, strong enough to um, to prevent. Western European countries or the Western powers from um, making inroads into it. Okay, uh, to to, to uh, what basically motivated many of these uh, European powers was, of course, the, the the money to be had. You know, the riches to be had if you penetrated China, and China couldn't stop that. So, uh, that piece of so the century of humiliation starts um, roughly. It starts at around the time of the Opium Wars in the 1840s, and then it ends a century later. In 1940, with the um, establishment, with the triumph of the um, communist uh, armies in at the end of the civil war, so that ends the the, the worst part of the uh, of that century of humiliation will naturally be the all of the invasions that happened, and of course the worst invasion, of course, with the Japanese uh, with the Japanese depredations. It took. Um, Ironically, it was an Asian power that was the most brutal against China, even though 
it was a it was the West that started everything. Okay, in terms of the century of humiliation, it was the European powers, but it was the Asian power. It was the rise of Japan that caused the most bloodshed in China, uh, starting from the Sino-Japanese War in the 1890s, um, the occupation of uh, Manchuria, and then the all-out 1937 um, uh, Sino-Japanese War, the Second Sino-Japanese War, yeah, uh, in 1937, and which eventually. Uh, some people are saying that uh, there are some historians who say that the real start of the Second World War could be seen in the China operations. Um, because usually, um, the perception is that World War II started in September 1, 1939. But there are other historians who argue that the war actually started much earlier on uh, when China uh, was invaded by Japan uh, in the Sino-Japanese War of 1937. And uh, because that actually led to... Um, led to um, the Pacific War. It, it, it's, it stumbled into the Pacific War. Uh, so that's your century of humiliation, basically. You have, uh, uh, even within that, in the middle of that, you also have uh, uh, popular culture and you have the Boxer Rebellion, you know, where in the turn of the century, turn of from, from 1800s to the 1900s, the turn of that century, we're in um, an uprising against the... Um, an internal problem within China was uh, taken advantage of by the Western powers to get more concessions. And then I remember one of the things that uh, were be talked about was the Chinese melon, where in European powers, including Japan, were cutting up China into spheres of influence. Now the thing with it, with the uh, with that is that okay, it's not like the Philippines. Okay, the Philippines was you know it's been run over by so many colonial powers. You know, um, okay, cool. Fine, whatever. But the problem with the Chinese was this: it was it had a perception of itself okay? uh, um, prior to the century of humiliation, and that's why they call it a century of humiliation. And they take it so personally because it was prior to that. China was China saw itself as the state, the the, the number one state or the Middle Kingdom, as they say. Uh, yeah, the it kingdom, was, yeah, yeah. It had a view of itself as superior to everybody. Okay, and why not kind of racist actually in the sense that they looked at our foreigners as barbarians, and then here were the foreigners suddenly cutting them up into pieces, laying waste to their armies, uh, carving spheres of influence within their um, uh, territory, and for for a civilization that prides itself as the oldest uh, continuous. Um, civilization in the world, you know, they, they, that's what they pride themselves as. That was practically a bitter pill to swallow, okay? And that's what uh, that's what stuck to them uh, for all this time. And then when, when uh, uh, the Communist Party um, took power in 1949, if I'm correct, it, it, this, mm -hmm. it, it, it embarked on a campaign actually to correct that, you know, so it embarked on a campaign to correct what it perceived was this century of humiliation. Okay, so it started out. Um, so that we are now living in that uh, situation where China uh, sees itself now as trying to correct. You know, so imagine China still has this perception that it's the Middle Kingdom. It's still the um, the uh, most superior country in the world, or things like that. It's distinct to greatness. So it has this chip on its shoulder and it wants to correct things okay, to its interest. So that, that's where we are living right now. There is so much to unpack there. Exactly. Let's, uh, 
let's let's break down you just gave a great overview let's let's break it down a little bit here because what what we've got going on is roughly the period it's 1839 to 1949 110 years and you've got a variety of factors and we that kind of interact together and shock the chinese system you've got external powers particularly Britain, France, the mm-hmm. United States, later joined by Germany and Japan, mm-hmm. um, getting involved, taking exclaves in some cases. Don't, this mm-hmm. is when, after the first opium wars are concluded, that's when Hong Kong Island mm-hmm. is for, it becomes British. The Portuguese take over Macau soon after. Mm-hmm. Um, then you've got other conflicts in the 1850s and the 1860s, the Taiping Rebe- Rebellion, which many people probably are familiar with, Chinese Gordon. Um, and that period and then the boxers you're right the boxers around 1900 the famous 55 days of peking it's a movie actually right it's a popular right. movie in the 1950s very popular movie in the 1960s mm-hmm. um you know and and the 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 western powers get a significant indemnity mm-hmm. that the chinese government has to pay and at the end of each of these conflicts the chinese suffer economically and they lose some elements of their sovereignty uh, particularly when you look at for example the yangtze river patrol which starts in 1844 and by the way fun fact is the longest continuous deployment of u.s troops overseas in history from 1844 to 1949 with a short break during world war ii the yangtze river patrol um, to protect western business interests in land uh, the doctrine of extraterritoriality which starts at that point uh, where, you know, Western civilians are not subject to Chinese law. They're subject to their home laws. Could you imagine a government today allowing something like that or, or being in a position where it was imposed upon them, you know, and that really, you know, so that really erodes Chinese sovereignty. And then you've got, you know, losing other territory, losing Taiwan in the 1890s to Japan, as you talked about, the Russo-Japanese War, which was fought partly mm-hmm. on Chinese territory in Manchuria. Mm-hmm. You know, basically China is just, they're kind of bystanders and, and militarily impotent, for lack of a better term. Um, and then, of course, you have the uh, the Second Sino-Japanese War, um, which is still, in many parts of the world, the scale of the destruction there rivals what the Germans and the Soviets mm-hmm did to each other on the Eastern Front. So you've got that from an external standpoint. And then you've got internal Chinese dynamics. So I want to talk about that here in a minute, but I was curious if you had anything within the kind of the conflicts and kind of what we're looking at um, for what the, what the West is doing to China, um, creating this humiliation. I'm curious if you have any additional thoughts on that. For, for me, basically, is that it... Um, um, it for now, okay. It uh, it's it's good propaganda for them, you know. Uh, just a few minutes ago, before I I went online, I was uh, watching this uh, video, and uh, but it's a totally different thing. It's there was an interview of Russians, and they were talking about war, okay, the Second World War, and you could see here that they were fed by a propaganda of the Great Patriotic War and how Russia saved the. Eastern Europe and these Eastern Europeans are all ungrateful people. Okay, so there, that's the that's how. I, and it struck me that 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 similar type of propaganda, propaganda is also being done on the Chinese people now. Okay, uh, that 
uh, this this thing, this thing that we see here, that the uh, the century of humiliation, the extraterritoriality, the the arrogance of the Western of the European powers. Of course, there's Japan, okay, and up to now the Chinese really don't forgive Japan in terms of what it did, okay, in the in the Second World War and in the. Oh, That's true. Of, just just look at how the rape of Nanking and it, the yes. interpretation, even the acknowledgement mm -hmm. of it, yes. is a geopolitical factor yeah. in Japan Japanese Chinese relations mm -hmm. to this day. And then they use that for propaganda against uh, pressure against uh, from China. Like for example, in the Philippines, um, there are a lot of uh, China. There are a number of Chinese uh, sponsored. When I say Chinese sponsored. There are institutes institutes in the Philippines that are sort of. Um, uh, supported by the Chinese government, okay. They're like they're Confucian institutes, okay. The mm -hmm. Confucius institutes, okay. And then um, they 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 come up with film showings and guess what? Most what some of the um, topics are. It's on the Sino-Japanese War. So as the Philippines tries to work a working relationship with Japan in the present, China gets back to the past. You know, gets all of the atrocities of the Japanese. Presents it to everybody and tells tells for example the Philippines, hey, did they slaughter you too? So that's the thing, you know. The 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 yes in the in the the, the the century of humiliation was really an unjust imposition of foreign powers into China. Okay, uh, the Chinese suffered a lot, you know. Uh, the opium wars, for example. I mean, imagine going to war so that you can force a country to take drugs. <laughs> Like it just well that was that was one that was one different war on drugs. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so and, you know, and then a number of British banks, you know, got wealthy because of that war on drugs, you know. So so I, I think H, uh, there's one uh, uh one um, uh British uh bank um uh that uh, that got its uh, got its uh, that started precisely because of uh, all of the all of this unequal um, uh, trade, all this opium imposed on uh, China, and and that you see, so so the Chinese the Chinese suffered a lot for, uh, because of that. Then you 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 would ha also have uh, uh, this uh, what what the Japanese were doing that I said a while ago. But you know, it's one thing to suffer, and it's another thing to twist it and to use it for whatever geopolitical <laughs> ambitious aggressive act that you have right now you know and 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 the thing is that this created precisely because it created a sort of persecution i don't know the psychological term for it because as um, i'm not a psychologist i'm a historian is that um it's like a siege mentality or a persecution complex that the chinese have it you know as in big time they have it you know, they think that they're being persecuted and if there's another country that mirrors them that's going to be russia they both have the same attitude you know they they feel oppressed they feel the world is against them you know and, and i'm talking about the man on the street so and then they're fed with this, that same amount of propaganda and, and that's why um you have social media the chinese and the social media they're, they're fed that propaganda that again it's going to be if we don't act now it's going to be another century of humiliation again. Words to that effect, you know. So, so that's that's how I see it. Yes, there was a. And, and I'll just jump fine. in real quick. If, yeah. if you view things through a lens of persecution, you actually disregard some of the achievements of that era. Mm -hmm. um, and we can talk about you know the Sun Yat Sen revolution shortly, yeah. 
but you look at the the Chinese army actually went through a significant modernization pro- program. Um, you know, the Boxer Rebellion, the Chinese won land victories. They won land victories in the first Sino-Japanese War. Yes. And there was some very heroic resistance put mm-hmm. up by the nationalist armies during the, uh, the second Sino-Japanese yeah. War. There's uh, the, um, what was that great battle? Tai Er Chuang, if I'm correct. I, I, I can't. Uh, there's a there's a great battle, Tai Er Chuang, if I'm correct. If, if, if I remember correctly, okay, because again, I am a Filipino, not a Chinese. So anyway, uh, but but again, um, because much of the Chinese army in the in the uh, 1930s, um, the same guy who had built up what eventually became the Wehrmacht uh, was actually high. Actually, also helped the Chinese. If I'm correct, That's right. He was you know? hired von Falkenhausen. He was hired to yeah. go. <laughs> yeah, and. Uh... And train the Chinese army. In fact, if you look at the Chinese mm-hmm. army in '37, mm-hmm. a lot of them are wearing the coal scuttle yes. that the yes. Germans wear. That's right. And, and they were armed with uh, practically German gear. You know, there's the Car 98, and then and then um, the the Panzer One's first uh, combat was actually in Poland, if I'm correct. You know, um, mm-hmm. the first combat of the Panzer One. Uh, it's a toss-up. It's either uh, China or Spain. It's either those two places, you know. Right. Or it, it, it predated. It predated World War One. So aside from Spain, the, the Panzer One was also in service with the um, Chinese armies, and um, there were two con- there were two major po- there were two countries that were supplying heavily the the Chinese. First, of course, with the Germans, and the second uh, were the Russians themselves. Right. So that's why the um, there was this. Um, you would have this, it's like, you know, it's a fascinating, a strange situation where on one side of the globe, as the Spanish Civil War is raging, you have the nationalists with uh, fascist equipment, you know, the Panzer One and then the, the uh, CB, uh, the, the Car. Yeah, that's Franco, uh, Franco's nationalists yeah, against the, Pan- the Republic of Spain, and the, right. Yeah, and the Republicans had Russian T-26 and the BT-5s and, and the yeah. BA-10s, okay. But then in China, the Chinese have both equipment in their in their inventory, you know. They have, and then they're up against the Japanese, you know. So, so, so it's a, it's a very peculiar army. It had a nice core, but the core was devastated during the, um, during the the well, initial battle. Thirty seven, Nanking, and then Hankou thirty eight, yeah, which we know today is Wuhan. Yes, yes. Um, that really Ooh, tore Wuhan. out the professional core, yes, of much of the Chinese army. But it still stayed in the field and tied down millions of Japanese for another seven years. I I think the the problem with the Chinese at the time was that um, was that uh, there was there was a point that uh, that um, yes, the the army was gutted, but at the same time, it was also a problem of strategic uh, prioritization for Chiang Kai-shek. Um, to the point that there was an, there was a uh, there was this crisis because of the fact that he was um, pers- he was focusing too much on Mao, uh, but um, and um, the, the, he was very um, he was very um, slow with the Japanese, you know. Right. So there was like there was this kidnapping incident that his that that certain um, Chinese uh, leaders were pressuring him to, you know, to to have a 
agreement with Mao and then, you know, reunite against the war against the Japanese. And that's another thing was that um, China was weak because internally it was weak. You know, uh, why it was weak? Because it was divided internally. Okay? Um, and that is why it made it easy to... Um, to um, uh, invade, you know, uh, China by why the Japanese were able because um, not only did you have a major problem between the communists and the uh, and the um, uh, um, nationalists, there were also all of these warlords. You know, you have this expression of regions, yes, even as all... late as 1943 and 44. Yes. There's some speculation that Chiang Kai-shek might get overthrown by some of these warlords. Yeah, so the internal divisions are profound. Mm -hmm. And that's something most people don't realize is that China, really until 1949, for the first time in over 100 years, that's when China got a real strong central government in many respects. A, a government that actually was uh, versized because of the of the lessons learned in, in the past uh, decades that it was struggling against the both the Kuomintang and, of course, the Japanese invasion. It resolved never to repeat and that's why it's very very brutal when it comes to facing dissent you know from from uh, the uh, eradication of a position of the of the of our landlords and uh, you know, all the purges that went on in china uh, and then in the from the 1940s and then the great the cultural revolution of the 60s but i'm going ahead okay so but it's a thing that that's what they learned okay used to purge you know keep right. a strong grip on power because um they hark back to history okay they go back even be before the century of humiliation is that uh, any dissent in china because of it's it's a it's a vast country it's a billion people or hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions prior to be becoming a billion people in the centuries prior to that uh it was very vulnerable to dissent and if dissent is left unchecked it turns into rebellion, and then there goes the mandate of heaven. It goes to somewhere else. So, so you get overthrown, and that's why the Chinese were the Chinese uh, also understood that if there's dissent and it's left unchecked, then it can also be taken advantage of by Western powers. And it happened so many times in their in their in their past. Okay, there was a Boxer Rebellion, um, and so on and so forth. And then uh, that's why again now they're. It, it's learning those types of lessons is that they apply it in controlling dissent from from uh, from the Uyghurs all the way to the Cantonese in Hong Kong. Well, and that's actually a perfect segue to look at the other, you know, the other dynamic. You've got the external dynamics of this period, 1839 to 1949. But internally, China is undergoing considerable transformation in itself. And you've touched on some of this already. I just want to remind people that the Qing dynasty um, ruled China and only left the stage in 1911 with the Sun Yat-sen revolution. And quite frankly, it, it had ruled for centuries before that, but it had also become somewhat sclerotic, somewhat, I'm trying to think of the right word, it had lost a grip on the country, it had allowed some of these regional factions to develop. And you see some of that in the Taiping Rebellion of the 1850s, 1860s, which is part of the Second Opium War, tied into the, tied into all of that. 
And it creates this division that you're talking about that external powers Mm -hmm. then exploit to impose. For a long time, the Chinese um, ports, you if you showed up and you paid to pay your taxes, you paid them to the to the uh, Western powers. You didn't actually pay them to the Chinese government. Um, You know, so that's the kind of sovereignty that starts to get eroded. The Boxer Rebellion is an effort to try and and change that, um, you know, kind of a a reaction to that. It it fails, obviously. Um, And then a few years later, um, the Dowager Empress um, and the very young Emperor Pu Yi, um, who becomes something of a shuttlecock between and is used for his own purposes by the Japanese and then later Mao. And that's a whole, that's a whole discussion mm-hmm. in itself. That's when that, that's when the uh, 1911, when soon the Sun Yat-sen revolution, that's really when the old order is wiped away. And now you found China as something it's never been before a Republic. And then from there, there's it splits into factions in the 20s and then you get the second chinese civil war the first one being in the 19th century with the taiping and then of course 1949 the foundation of the people's republic of china so there is tremendous internal dislocation that is somewhat exacerbated by western influence and outs- i should say outside influence because it's not just western powers it also japanese, also japanese but there's a lot going on in China itself that really, and and when you make some changes like that, particularly the wiping away the the emperor, the empress, the dynasty, you know that really gets at the core of a nation in many ways. And I'm curious how you see that kind of playing in, and how you see that kind of being interpreted today. But as a person who lived in Asia, I mean, I, I I grew up in a, I was born in a dictatorship. Okay, <laughs> so so I know. I mean, I I lived in in a situation where under a dictator, uh, we heard declarations of democracy. You know, so what I'm trying to say here is that um, when China overthrew the dynasties, it overthrew it overthrew uh, a a structure. But it did not overthrow the spirit, okay, or the the mentality, or the soul. It was still there. That's why what happens to Shun Yat-sen, okay? He gets he when he die when he dies he gets replaced by Chiang Kai-shek, and Chiang Kai-shek, you know, was a very bloody guy, okay? Uh, uh, he he um he was practically an auto uh, how do I say it? autocrat? If that's a term to use, okay? Um he. He was uh, he was somebody who who uh, was a product of man, you, 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 of, of the Chinese society um, that lived so long under this feudal concept of dynastical rule of of, of a Confucian mind of of, of uh, Confucian um, structures um, very hierarchical and so on. So he comes in. He still has that same he has that same man and his 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 attempt to grip you know. Uh, yeah, it, one could say that yes, uh, there was merit to what he wanted to do, which was to consolidate China. But then again, there was this other aspect of him that eventually in the 1940s, when the Americans were had ramped up all the aid to him, 
I mean, you they would get so frustrated with the governance style of Chiang Kai-shek, uh, mm-hmm. looking at the way he, the corruption within, you know, the the inability to reform proper uh, in a timely manner. Yes, uh, they were tying down uh, a lot of Japanese, but they could have done more, you know. Um, well, it's usually the complaint of uh, of uh, of American liaison uh, officers. And I, I remember to read about General Joe Stilwell ex- and yes. the, the frustrations that he has, mm-hmm. and then excuse me, his successor Al Wiedemeyer, mm-hmm. same way. You know, mm-hmm. they both express those same frustrations, and even George Marshall. There's been a mm-hmm. great some scholarship recently mm-hmm. about the Marshall mission in forty late forty five through mm-hmm. forty seven. Trying to broker and head off a, a civil the civil war mm-hmm. between the communists and the nationalists, mm-hmm. and it all runs afoul of the diffused power structure, but also the what you're describing about the mm-hmm. governing style of Chiang Kai Shek. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that thing. Um, so, uh, then after Chiang Kai Shek, after the fall of uh, the um, the Kuomintang, you have. The Communist Party now taking over, which practically, by virtue of the way it acts, it's like a dynasty of sorts. You know, it's a communist dynasty. So there, but it's not like the North Korean one. You know, which is really a dynasty through and through. But this one, you still have that. You still have that autocratic, um, totalitarian approach, which which imperial, um, uh, which China, uh, is was very familiar with with its uh, rulers. You know, so. So what we saw in the 19th century with China was imperial decay, you know, the, the dynastical decay already at that time. So, so um, uh, the same things would also be happening in previous dynasties that the, the power would get eroded and then um, a new dynasty would take over. So was the, was the, as this dynasty collapsed, you know, instead of another dynasty coming up, we had this Republican uh, interregnum, and I call it an interregnum, you know, because it didn't last long, and then it was replaced by something uh, totalitarian again or autocratic, more reflective of what was going on within China's context. Okay, so that I think that's that's very that's also very important to to understand also the uh, social context of 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 what China would be going through. Yeah, that's true. I've I've always thought that Sun Yat-sen's untimely death in 1925. Mm-hmm. Um, really, because that's really when the interregnum mm-hmm. ends. I would agree with you from 1911 till 1925 mm-hmm. is really that interregnum. And mm-hmm. then it's, I'm reminded of one of the lines uh, mm-hmm. that Pete Townsend wrote in one of his songs, meet the new boss, same as the mm-hmm. old boss. It's yes, yeah. it's a very similar feudal structure under Zhang Kai-shek. Mm-hmm. And then, which, you know, ultimately the, you know, the divided part mm-hmm. of nationalist China mm-hmm. until the end of the civil war you see great parallels with the feudal structure under the dynasty pre Sun Yat-sen revolution. And had Sun Yat-sen lived longer, even 10 years longer, that might have, you know, China might have taken a very different path. I, I think yeah. you're right. Yeah. It, it could have taken a different path or, but most likely the Japanese would have messed up with it because I think that was a problem with Japan. <laughs> Japan is to blame why China went communist. Actually, I, I would, uh, I would say that, be confident in saying that. Why? Precisely because um, there may have been a see, there might have been hope for the Kuomintang as it, you know, tried to tried to um, 
consolidate its power. As it consolidated its power in the 1920s, you know, even with the communists, um, even with uh, Mao, Mao was put on retreat. He had to retreat. Okay, unfortunately, Tokyo had other plans. <laughs> so, so they when they invaded, you know, it messed up China so badly. The core armies that would have been important in in um, consolidating, you know, they, 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 this uh, German trained uh, nationalist armies that would have been very important in. In intimidating and uh, cowing the the warlords, oh, they were all destroyed by the Japanese. So the Japanese invasion destroyed uh, uh, the Kuomintang's last hope to consolidate the country. It opened uh, up the country to more divisions, and then, uh, as we all know, uh, precisely because of the Kuomintang's Chiang uh, Kai-shek style of leadership, as he failed as a leader, and then because. In Second World War, we all know that the Russians or the USSR won, uh, uh, won against the uh, um, was part of the victorious allies, and then after it uh, destroyed the so, Soviet intervention army, was the shot in the arm that Mao yes, needed exactly to really really take the field against against mm-hmm. Shang and kick kick the war yeah. kick the civil war off the way the way yes. it did the way it did. You're right. Yeah, but, yeah. So again, uh, directly and indirectly, the Japanese <laughs> screwed up China so so badly that now we're faced with a China that's so xenophobic, so um, uh, such a big chip on its shoulder, you know, paranoid of so many things, and yet having this um, perception that um, um, it has to protect itself at all, at all costs and it has to expand in order to have. Um, uh, in order to protect its natural interests. Well, and that's that's an interesting line that the Communist Party can take then is because look at how look at how disordered and screwed up this country was and then all of a sudden after 1949 it wasn't anymore. Mm-hmm. Of course you and I have studied enough history of the communist regime oh, yeah. to know that things like the great leap forward and the cultural revolution were just as disruptive if not more so in some respects. Um, it continuing forward with certain other things, the one child child policy, for example, even as late uh-huh. as that, and what it's do what it's been doing to the demographics of that of the People's Republic. Um, but it does provide, on the surface, a convenient a convenient uh, a peg for the communists to uh-huh. hang their hat on and to hang uh-huh. the prestige, hang part of the prestige of the party uh-huh. on. And and they do that at the cost, as he said, the great leap forward and the cultural revolution at a great cost of human lives. So again, that's another thing that uh, that uh, uh, um, we have to take into consideration here is that they uh, they will not balk in losing lives. They will not. They will not. Uh, that's not an obstacle for them, basically. You know, as they as they push forward, I mean, all the way up to Tiananmen Square, or they just where the the suppression of it costs Nobody knows exactly how many were killed, but you know, a thousand or right. so. But there, it's it, it, human life is uh, is um, expendable. For, I'm for reminded this. of what the U.S. ambassador in 1941 said to mm-hmm. Ernest Hemingway. He said, "China, because of its size and the amount of people, will do quote whatever it chooses to do unquote." Mm-mm. And that's true. Chi- China certainly in the last 150 years has demonstrated a great ability to throw people at a problem. 
Um, if you look, even for example, the B-29 runways at Chengdu yeah. were constructed by hand mm-hmm. by Chinese people. Um, just manpower with very basic tools. And they they built an air base mm-hmm. out of nothing in central China for B-29s to bomb mm-hmm. Japan, which they did successfully in 1944. So it's the, you're right. Then the, when you look at it from a national character, there are certain trends in Chinese society and Chinese national character that have continued right up to the present day, even over the last 150 and even further back. Yeah, and and I I, I think that's um, I think that's what we need to always remember that uh, when you look at China, okay, you don't again apply uh, Western or for example. Um, American values to to how they perceive things. It's it's a very vast and again, unlike the United States, you know, where where there's a lot of discourse here, there's a lot of opinions, you know. Um, but in China, it's really always uh, like it's it's. Uh, I mean, uh, information is controlled, okay, in, in a way, you know, you know, it's very much controlled. Uh, people there, you know, it's like uh, there's a, there's this concept of a big brother watching you. And and it's a, it's a totally different, and they they're constantly fed propaganda, and that that's what uh, that's what uh, uh, we witness here. And again, that's also a danger precisely because of the fact that if you're if you're constantly fed propaganda, if you're always being said that oh you're a victim of this, if you have this victim mentality, then you're li- you're 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 liable to create uh, tensions and problems within that may become untenable in the future. You know? Like uh, for example. Um, totally in different countries, the main problem with them is their inability to uh, be accountable, you know, their lack of accountability, okay? So far in China, um, one thing I can say about China so far is that it takes a lot for China to move militarily, okay? Um, in comparison to its <laughs> to, to, to Russia, which, you know, it's like, which was like um, what they did in Ukraine, you know, I would not expect China to do that, you know? Uh, um, just like uh, just, uh, without um, without really going through the uh, the process of uh, weighing the risks of it, you know. But still, uh, you still don't know um, that uh, what 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 uh, a a con- what, what what something can still happen within China. You know, an internal problem can become resolved. That's why, for example, right now the economy is going down, and then you have this interplay of uh, of 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 China, uh, pump, um, hyping up nationalism, you know, and then people will now start, you know, becoming um, aggressive in the sense that, uh, look, uh, it, it may stoke up pressure, it may push pressure on China to do radical actions, and 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 sometimes that's where conflict ends up, and that that's why I'm talking about that. Um, what I'm trying to say here is that Taiwan might not be. Might, might turn into a conflict not because there really is a valid military um, objective to do it, but it might be because something internal is happening in China, and then um, it um, a, a totalitarian government there, no accountability to people, might want to distract the people. You know? and uh, I remember that was always the fear of the Soviet Union, was that mm-hmm. something internal would happen that may or may not be all that visible to the to NATO, and it would force the Soviets to do either collapse or 
go to war with the West and seize what they needed. And that's, you know, that's something, you know, the reasons, you know, you brought up Russia earlier. I think there's something also to that about you look at how a country sees Mm -hmm. itself and the stories Mm -hmm. it tells itself about. Mm -hmm. You look at how Russia, you know, the Russian government really set the stage to make the case why Ukraine needed to be, in their terms, liberated. Um, you know, that it's at variance with facts on the ground. It's at variance with, you know, there are other interpretations, but that's the story that the Russian government told the Russian people. And, you know, you look at what China's telling the Chinese people about this century of humiliation, mm. you know, it feeds... And it sets up potentially what you're talking about. I would add one thing as well, is when you look at the wars that China fought during the century of humiliation, vast majority of the time they lost control of all or part of their coasts. Mm-hmm. And they've gotten Macau back, they've gotten Hong Kong back, you know, they've secured the mainland coast. But the first island chain is potentially hostile. Mm-hmm. And in the case of Taiwan, because that's still an unfinished civil war, there is hostility there, Mm-mm. you know? And so, you know, how does that play into all of this and how might that influence? Cause you're right. Decision-making is not always mm-hmm. rational. Sometimes mm-hmm. there's an emotional, particularly when you feel your national identity is at stake. I, I the problem with the Chinese is that, um, and of course, again, um, it being a totalitarian country is the, the lack of information and the manufacturing of information. Now, um, for for us in this, for us, when we look at the South China Sea, uh, we see a we see an international waterway. It's basic and it's simple. That's the reality, which is an agreement or uh, which is an internationally recognized uh, reality. Right. Except for China. China sees it as its own. The nine dash drum, line. Yeah, the nine dash line. It drums into its people that it's it belongs to it. Now, why does it drum again? We, we, we can uh, we can we can um, uh, credit the century of humiliation for for that uh, that behavior that why China is insisting that it's own now because now China has to be strong to to to, pro- to protect its interest. Okay, because unlike before, we were weak. Now now it's strong. So it's it's telling the people. That's ours. It's it's ours. It's our possession. They don't. They're not saying that it's the exclusive economic zone of China. No, uh, they're saying it's our territorial sea. So you practically painted yourself into a corner already. Mm-hmm. How can you negotiate now? How can you negotiate with any country if you're saying that it's ours? You you, you can't negotiate because now you're you're obligated by by insisting that it's yours. And no country now is going to agree with you. No, Philippines, that's why in the case of the Philippines, despite the fact that we had Duterte who was a pro-China guy, I mean, the Philippines could not stomach, you know, agreeing that, agree, uh, coming up with an agreement that would recognize China as the owner of the South China Sea. You know? I, so what I'm trying to say, what I'm saying here is that China painted itself in a corner, making it unable to, to negotiate with any of its other uh, neighbors, and then making its people believe that it's theirs, you know, so or that the seas are theirs. So now you can't negotiate with the countries, and you can't back down from the from what you said to the people. So now you practically even painted yourself in turn uh, into a corner internally, 
you can't come up now with any win-win situation with any neighbor now. Because if and you that try also to do means that, when the U.S. Navy has to does its full yeah. freedom of navigation operations, exactly, you get up close and personal with them, and and mm. well, you and I both know what international mm. incidents that could potentially yes. one day touch off. And, and those international incidents, it, they'll they be minor. They will be they will be magnified in let's say China's propaganda machinery, and then people there will start pressuring the government to do something. So again, it, now that's why I was saying that that's the problem with, with China's perception of reality. Okay, It's um, the century of humiliation. It's it's embedded in its psyche that it was, uh, it was victimized. Now it has to assert itself. It's asserted itself very responsibly by, 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 by going against international norms and, uh, and uh, treaties. And now it's also pushed a narrative to its own people uh, that um, that is so twisted and it is not reflective of again of uh, international of, of the international order so what 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 does this uh, reveal it mean it, it means that um, conflict is just around the corner anytime so I would understand why um, that uh, officer the American senior officer, was saying something about when uh, about several years from now there will be conflict. In in fact, you just don't know when it can happen, um, because uh, uh, because again because as you said, any incident that that happens here, it may um, evolve. It may turn into a conflict, not because the powers only are are clashing, but because internally China is now in in the midst of uh, the Chinese government is now facing internal pressure that if it does not correct, if it does not uh, appease that internal pressure, it might turn into outright rebellion against the Chinese uh, Communist Party. So what do they have to do? They have to now act decisively. But if now if they act decisively, well, here comes conflict can happen. War can actually happen. So that's a problem. We don't have that in in um, in um, uh, countries like uh, the United States, or, or example, um, I'm not even going to say the Philippines. Japan, okay, Japan. <laughs> I'm asking too much about that. The Japan, okay, Japan. You don't have that situation, but in China there is. You know, uh, it's that that that's a thing that even people that that uh, some observers are worried about is the amount of propaganda that China is pushing into its uh, people. It's creating this possible pressure. That will now make have, have will have the Chinese government um, have no room to act anymore, and that's why conflict becomes uh, an outcome. Well, you and I have studied enough history to know that there are parallel scenarios yeah. that may very well prove frighteningly prophetic as this goes. But I think I think the essential point is as we kind of mm. bring it to a close here. I think the essential point is. Mm. This matters. This history matters. Mm -hmm. And we need to understand the century of humiliation because mm -hmm. it feeds so much of the mentality of the People's Republic of China because it's this national story that they're telling themselves mm -hmm. and how it influences their view of the world mm -hmm. and view of what their options and their uh, priorities mm -hmm. should be. So do you have any final thoughts before uh, before we wrap it up? Well, um, my final thoughts basically said sometimes when we talk about these things, okay, we talk about China, you know, 
Um, I'll give you a specific um, example: the Falklands War, right? In um, a, a totalitarian government that uh, wanted to hold on to power, you know, it started the war with uh, right, Britain. And occupied, and, the, occupied the Falklands, yeah. which are disputed and, between Argentina yeah. and Britain. Even though exactly. the people of the Falklands want to stay British, yeah. the Argentines also mm -hmm. claim it. Yes. And what triggered the war was actually nothing to do with uh, with the strategic implications, but because there was an internal problem in Argentina, as the junta was uh, was faltering, so something had to be done, and you had to rally the people to a flag, and here you go to war, and that's a problem with propaganda, that sort of thing. So that's an example of that, and basically that. So we have to be vigilant because things uh, can can um, happen. Like for example, right now it's one year since the uh, Ukraine war. Okay, um, started and uh, I remember I was interviewed uh, a year ago by a reporter and I, I just told the reporter, no, looking at the forces arrayed, you know, I, I don't think they, the Russians will 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 invade the Ukraine. Next, you know, the Russians invaded Ukraine the following day, <laughs> and it's like, then, <laughs> how could he? And then you know, so for for us who who study military history, we know that uh, we already we could sense that if if Putin invaded, he'd be beaten up by the Ukrainians precisely because of the fact that you had the war in Chechnya as an example. Okay, mm -hmm. uh, that the Russians floundered in Chechnya; they were beaten in the first round precisely because of they had they had difficulty in operating. So, what I'm saying here is that uh, personalities sometimes matter, you know, and accountabilities of governments have. And the problem here is that if you're faced with a totalitarian government that is not accountable to its people. Then uh, you have to be really very, very careful and vigilant in uh, how you deal with it. That's a that's a great insight, and I think a good note to end on. You know, as we as we think about the Asian geopolitics, it's important to look at it from through the lens of what they're and pay attention to what they're telling themselves and what's influencing their thinking. And the century of humiliation, I think the points you've made, the points we've made tonight have been have hit that right on and, and show the importance of why this history matters. This is a region with a long memory and China is a country that has a very long memory. And that interpretation, that national narrative, it's telling itself matters. Um, and we'll see, you know, we'll see how it plays out, mm -hmm. but uh, it's, this is certainly a factor that, that needs, needs due attention for sure. And so with that, uh, we'll wrap up this episode uh, thanks for listening. For Jose Custodio, Thank I'm you. Chris Kolakowski, and uh, thanks for listening, and we'll see you on another episode of Vanguard Indo-Pacific. Thank you for listening. Thank you.